Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Okay, welcome to Race and Democracy. We are very excited to have Dr. Tracy Lowe with us today, um, who's a postdoctoral fellow at IUPRA, the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis, right here at the University of Texas at Austin. And uh, Tracy is also one of our uh, UT alum uh, mm-hmm. who, had her, who received her PhD in higher education uh, leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've done really... Um, you know, Dr. Lowe, Tracy, if I may, you've done terrific work on black women, uh, graduate students uh, in the United States um, from multiple perspectives, both uh, their own experiences uh, facing racial discrimination, um, everything from microaggressions to more overt discrimination, but the way in which they counter and resist. So the, the work you do really looks at black women's resilience and their transformative leadership and strength and the way in which they provide tools and models for other groups to organize and um, sort of achieve excellence in the, in the face of state-sanctioned discrimination and racism. So I want to talk to you about your, your project uh, on, on black women and girls and, and really frame it by saying, one, what got you interested in this and why is this so important? And this has become a much bigger subject with people like Michelle Obama writing her biography, her autobiography, uh, Becoming, Mm -hmm. and doing these book tours. And sometimes people talk about black girl magic and black woman magic. So I I want you to explore that within the context of the work you do. So this work really started out as me search. And I will always say that I got that term from Dr. Reddick because Dr. Richard Reddick, because he was the first person who I heard say it. And so I heard that term early on when I started my graduate program. And... Honestly, when I came here, my interests for a dissertation topic were not at all in this area. It it was a focus on leadership, but for me specifically, what I had studied in my master's program was black male leadership. And so as I was going through the program, there was a sort of transformation that happened, especially as I started taking more classes in black studies and just thinking about um, history and resistance in a different way and what leadership looks like. And there felt like there was something that was missing because because people always tell you when you're doing your dissertation, it has to be a topic you're passionate about and that you're going to want to see through because it's a long, tedious process and it can take um, a lot of your energy. And so there was a period of reflection that happened um, after I took a Black Studies methodology class. And I was reading a lot of different books about um, Black women in particular. And so I was thinking, I was like, why does this research area not feel like something that is is something that I want to keep pursuing? And I realized it's because it wasn't really addressing a topic that was um, urgent to me. Not to say that Black males are not urgent, but for me in thinking about my own experiences, and then particularly in the context of those classes, there were a lot of Black women in the classes that I was in. And so hearing their stories and understanding the struggles that they were having, not only within institutions, but how they were doing resistance outside of the institution and in their communities, that really sparked something in me in thinking about how Black women do leadership 
and leadership is very broad. So I wanted to narrow that down specifically and then thinking about, well, what does leadership look like and why and how can I make this relevant, particularly to me? And so there have been a lot of movements that happen um, since 2014, since I've been at UT, and specifically thinking about how women have resisted, encountered, not only um, resisted and participated in those movements, but also how they're doing it in a graduate setting, because there's not a lot of research about graduate students. And when you say movements, you mean social justice movements, everything from Black Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. Women's March, there's just so many different social movements that have erupted. Yes, social movements from that perspective. And so in thinking about the research and trying to intersect it with education, intersect it with my background, I thought about the fact that there's not just a lot of research on black women. And specifically, if I want to do research, me search and find something that was important to me, it was looking at black women graduate students and how that leadership occurs through activism, through resistance and how that's happening in an environment that I would say it's it's very nuanced because in academia, when you're trying to get into these positions of, say, tenure or administration, you walk a fine line because you are, in a sense, making sure that you're, I guess, doing the respectability politics in a way or to a certain level. But then you also have to. <laughs> well, let's unpack these. that. What do yes. you mean by respectability? Respectability politics. politics. To me, what that means is there are certain expectations certain expectations of how you perform, how you move through systems, how you move through specifically education, how you interact with others. There's a and level who's, of... Who's, uh, who are the authors of those expectations? The authors of those expectations can be... I would say, if you're thinking about in the educational system, those who you are trying to attain their level of position... Those who is that are, usually white people? Is it sometimes black people? It's white How's and it? black people. White and black. I would argue yeah. that it's white and black people because okay. I know we just had a conversation on this with a friend, respectability politics in the black community, mm-hmm. and how there's often, I guess, the expectation and encouragement that you perform in a way that is appealing to whiteness or to white people. And so in thinking about respectability politics, not only navigating those, but just navigating the expectations of the academy or what I would say are unwritten rules and expectations are things that are not always discussed. And so in understanding that and how black women navigate those, I wanted to understand how we navigated those and what we do when we navigate those and how a lot of the ways that we navigate those and resist those, people may not necessarily notice because they're not thinking about it from an expanded view of activism, but maybe the more traditional voting, um, going out in the public and doing political office or campaigning. And so I wanted to look at how this activism shows up in different nuanced ways along, like, a spectrum. That's great. And I I want you to, one, talk about your findings, Mm -hmm. um, but place them in the historical context because I think that one of the things in the 21st century that is happening vis-a-vis these social movements like Black Lives Matter is really centering black women's roles um, in terms of leadership as as political leaders. and public intellectuals and organizers as architects and and framers um, and not just participants in in black freedom struggles, but really in all facets of society. You know, as entrepreneurs, as 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 mothers, as 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 writers. Um, you know, really as, as the center rather than the margin. 
Um, so what did you find in terms of your your research? I would say I found a lot of interesting things. Um, some of them were things that I already knew because as a black woman moving through these spaces, I've myself experienced them, but some of them were um, unexpected. And so I would say in a historical context and specifically thinking about how black women and their leadership roles in these movements have often been muted or people don't often talk about just the amount of work that black women have done in movements. I found that that is probably still true today from thinking about my conversations with the black women who were in this study. And I would say that in thinking about this and the work that black women have done, I would say historically, it's a lot the same. So the organizers, a lot of my findings, we had black women who were, who were organizing. They were doing things in the background. So say, if you think about in the educational system, in thinking about trying to leave a legacy for others, that was one of my findings. So there was always this thought of, I need to make things better for the person that comes after me. And so organizing, going through systems and institutional systems and trying to create change through policies, systems. So that's a form of activism that's been happening from for from historical lens. And you have like the civil rights movement where they're trying to change policy. But then you also have the activism where the women were trying to change, make resistance or create change within their social spheres. And so the negative images, the negative representations of black women, there were a lot of things that they did in order to encourage each other and to uplift each other and to make sure that when they moved through the world, they were creating a different view of what black women were and how black women. um, How did they do this specifically? So I would say in creating a new image of how black women were, a lot of the time I got the comment of just being a black woman in a graduate space was resistance. Mm. And so I would say a lot of that was showing up mm-hmm. and being in these spaces that often were play, like mainly white, mainly white spaces, showing up and being in these spaces. And so they had the opportunity to have a lot of these dialogues and to talk with with these individuals and to show that there are more than one ways to view a black woman who's in graduate school, who's being educated, who's not necessarily the the promiscuous or the Jezebel stereotype or the uneducated or all the negative stereotypes that you get about black women. So there was a lot of just being Mm -hmm. that was seen as a form of resistance. And not only... And when you mentioned these Jezebel types and promiscuity was part of what um, the research you found is that black women felt that they were being sort of hypersexualized in these spaces in terms of the expectations of how their behavior was supposed to be. Yeah, hypersexualized in that people may have viewed them a certain way because of the way they dressed. Yes. Viewed them a certain way because of the sass- sassiness, quote unquote, that they had. Um, so that's one example. Just by their very presence. By their very presence. Yeah. Um, the way they may have been assertive in a classroom. And the way that they may not have backed down as other people thought they should have backed down. And so just, A, 
okay standing up in these classroom settings and pushing back on some of the rhetoric that was coming out of, say, their um, peers' mouths was one way that they worked within their spirits to kind of deconstruct what other people thought of as black women. No, that's great. Um, When we think about this and, you know, this notion of defining activism as just showing up, do you think it's both symbolic and substantive in terms of just the very fact that black women graduate students are on predominantly white campuses and institutions, the fact that they you know, are writing the papers, are intellectually participating. Is it symbolic? Is it substantive? Is it both in terms of that as a form of activism? I'd say it's both. And that symbolically, if I'm interpreting your definitions of symbolically, um, I'd say it's a symbol of the, it's a symbol of the fact that we can achieve Mm -hmm. It's a symbol of the fact that there are boundaries or barriers that are put in place to keep us from educational spaces. And as we begin to break into those spaces, then we were able to communicate the message that these are the specific barriers that come into play that keep you from getting into these spaces. So the rhetoric that you're not good enough, that you're not smart enough, we can deconstruct that. And so that symbol and having that symbol there, symbol of representation, is very important. So symbolically, I would say that representation is important. So the symbol becomes or the symbolism becomes substantive at the same time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what else, What other aspects of, of black women um, activism in terms of these graduate students that you were looking at that you saw? I mean, you talked about policy. You talked about just showing up. What other? Because I know one of the things your research found was that there wasn't a one-size-fits-all. Um, so these black women weren't having this one model on how to achieve excellence, and they all did it. They all were doing different things. They were all doing different things, and it was fascinating. I had some who were doing it through their media Let's talk about that. Yes. And I had a lot of conversation on that. It was just interesting because... When you say media, do you mean social media? Social media. And... What were they doing? News outlets, um, like college newspapers. They were doing it through a variety of ways. Um, Twitter, all of those things. And the conversation about that, around that spun around. A lot of it talked about how people felt it was armchair activism. Interesting. Now, did they feel it was armchair activism or people were criticizing them? And what were they doing in social media? Were they saying, was it black girl magic? Black girls are intellectuals. These graduate students, what were they saying? Were they doing social media, Black Lives Matter activism, feminist activism? What were they doing? Well, there were some who were actually participating um, in some of the prominent, and again, they were participating in some of the prominent movements. And so they were actually out in the streets doing this. So I had one person, one participant particularly, who was able to actually experience that, and her story was so fascinating. And so she was actually in the streets. But for the ones who were doing social media, a lot of them are doing social media in the fact that they're blogging about their experiences, the intersections of their experiences. They're doing a lot of work on media in order to get communities together. So one specifically talked about how social media was a form of organizing, and it was also a form of bringing people together. And then one person was doing it through her news outlet at her specific college or university. And so you're working against an administration who 
worked in the realm of respectability politics because it was at a Southern institution, Southern values. Um, And so in thinking about that, she was constantly trying to put out the stories and voices of black women, but fighting with an institution who was trying to, I would say, mold and shape how that story took place. So that was the specific media, what I call media outlet, because this this newspaper was going out online and it was going out. It was like an online mode of communication. So these were black women who were fighting against the censor, um, the censor of, the, of their own voices, mm-hmm. sometimes by white institutions, but sometimes by black leaders within either white or historically black institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that's very interesting because I want to stay with that for a second because I think about uh, sort of the best-selling YA novel that was turned into a film, The Hate You Give. I think about um, uh, Patrice Khan Colors and her memoir with Asha Bandele, um, When They Call You a Terrorist. So in some way, there is sort of black women's voices being commodified or being out in the public sphere. And I'm not criticizing the, the, that, that um, commodification. I'm just saying that it's just the fact of being in sort of a, a capitalist political economy that by the time we say, okay, black women's voices should be heard, there's going to be um, some that are elevated and, 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 and gain access and, and others that, that, that might not. But at least there's an admission that there's a marketplace for these ideas. Um, So when we think about media and sort of black women in media, and when you think about black Twitter, so much of black Twitter is black women and black women shaping the discourse, even though I think maybe in pop culture, we think of black men's voices shaping the discourse. And I think people are pushing back against that, especially with Black Lives Matter and the three black women, queer identified, um, Patrice Gon Colors and Opal Tometi and Alicia Garza, and so many of the so much of the leadership has been black women. Um, why do you think some people were criticizing black women as armchair activists? Do you think that's sort of instead of respectability politics, is that authenticity politics? This idea that um, you know there, there's there's some more ways of being black that are more authentic than others and that that sort of social media wasn't authentic enough? Why why do you think there was pushback? I do think from my findings that a lot of them talked about how different forms of activism were viewed differently. And so when we talk about the armchair activism, people who may have what I deem traditional views of activism as you're in the streets, they think about the 1950s, the protests, the marches, Armchair activism is like, okay, you posting something on your Facebook page, like, woohoo, that's that's all you're going to do because it's all that they view social media activism, activism as. And so when we talked about armchair activism as something that got pushed back, it was in the realm of it wasn't like what I'm used to. And so in coming in this new age where a lot of stuff takes place online and we're in a technological age, some people are more resistant to move with the times. And so those, I guess, I won't say, well, I will say stoic ideas of what activism were got pushed. Um, those stoic ideas of what activism was supposed to be mm-hmm. 
was what created the pushback against what they claimed was armchair activism. And I believe it could be just because there's just not an understanding of the expansiveness of social media Mm -hmm. and how much it creates impact. And I believe now that people are starting to see that. And they're coming around more to saying, okay, social media is activism. You know, I validate it. But there are always points along the way where I feel like specific actions are judged in in any historical context, like where specific activism may have been judged because some people may say, oh, that's too dangerous. Like, why are you going to protest? Why are you doing sit-ins? Why are you organizing in this way? But I think that's part of human nature, but also part of times changing and periods changing and people having to adjust. And I would add that I think black women's activism historically gets um, devalued and undervalued. So in a way, mm-hmm. by the time you get to a space where so many black women are leading um, that space, like a movement for black lives, um, you, you you can get people devaluing that, you know, because even when we think about the pantheon of black leaders, a lot of times we don't place black women um, and their leadership and their their and, and we don't center that. No, we don't. I want to shift a little bit and really um, talk about uh, now that you've graduated yourself and you're you're a doctor, um, Dr. Tracy Lowe, um, black women in in higher education and achievement in higher education. And really, I think one of the things that we see on one hand, black women in terms of the numbers are doing much better than black men. Um, in the United States, and really at every measure when we think about higher education. They're in more numbers, um, they're finishing degrees, they're finishing graduate degrees, medical degrees, it's really... But but on the other hand, um, we'd still see a paucity of uh, black women in real senior leadership roles um, at universities. My first thought when I think about senior leadership role would be presidents of universities, mm-hmm. especially presidents of PWI, predominantly white institutions, prestigious institutions. But then my second thought would be things like provost of the university and not just, um, uh, you know, th- things that are connected to student affairs and things that are connected to multiculturalism or, say, chief of diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why is that? And when you think about your own research and in your own trajectory, what can be done to alter that? We think about and, and of course, some people might listening might say, well, what about Ruth Simmons or what, what about these are, I think, in my mind, um, still outliers, unfortunately, not. And I, I think they're outliers, not in the sense that black women don't have the ability to lead, but in terms of being given the opportunity. So you have Ruth Simmons, you have um, uh, Joanne Berger Sweeney, who's president of Trinity. Uh, the new president of Wellesley is, is African-American woman. So there there are some, and certainly one of the greatest of all times is uh, Janetta B. Cole uh, of Spelman, um, um, going back you know thirty years ago. But why why is that the case? And what can we do? What strategies can we we put in place for Black women to succeed and thrive in that level? Not only get these doctorates, but move up and become. Um, institutional leaders and institutional builders, and then in turn open up those institutions to both black women and, 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 and black people? I think, first of all, it starts with just the appropriate mentorship, because a lot of times people don't know what they don't know. And to know that the opportunity exists to run an institution, just thinking about that, 
often when we're coming up, our parents might know what a doctor, a lawyer is, judge. And so just even thinking about the context of education, some people steer people away from education because it's seen as um, something that's valuable for you to get, but not necessarily for you to be an employee of the educational system because of pay or whatever. So I think it starts with just building, first of all, an awareness of these opportunities that happen. So building an awareness of a career in education and thinking about a career in education outside of teaching, thinking about the fact that you can be in administration and you can run these institutions and you can create change. But I would say specifically for me and thinking about even the undergraduate and the graduate level. And where did you go to undergraduate? Texas A&M University. Texas A&M. Yes, I know I'm in Longhorn Country. Well, you're um, a Longhorn and you're an Aggie. Yes, I am. Yeah, both. Tensions between the two. Um, but Texas A&M University, so I was navigating a predominantly white space as an undergrad. And even in thinking back then, I had no idea what higher, like the opportunities in higher education until someone pulled me aside and said, hey, this is something that you seem like you have a skill set for that you're interested in. And they Absolutely. opened the door and they hooked me up with a graduate coordinator for a higher ed program. And I hear that all the time, mm-hmm. Tracy. Um, we're, we're also not told when we I remember doing my Ph.D. We're not told when we're at these institutions that we are good enough and worthy enough to run these institutions. Yes. And then we see a whole load of other people running these institutions. It's lucrative, it's power, it's leadership, it's all these different things. And then lo and behold, you realize that, hey, these people aren't more intelligent than, than we are. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and they're running the institutions. Yes. yes. And I remember specifically, the, now that you bring this up, I was in your course and we talked about, you know, higher ed administration and I made the comment and you were like, well, do you want to be a president? And I was like, uh I don't really know if I want to go up that high. It's too much, like, I guess too much political tugs and tensions. And so since then, um, I've thought about being a president of a university um, and try to figure out the path to get there. But in thinking about figuring out that path, I think that's another thing that mentorship is important. Because as I'm navigating this, I have to depend on a lot of people to be able to be open enough to me in order to instruct me, to tell me, you know, these are the things you may not know. These are the people that you need to connect with. These are the conferences you need to go to. This is the next step that you need to take in order to get to that presidency. Like if you if I need a business background, if I need to take a particular position in student affairs to get to the deanship, like those little nuances and those steps are something that. As a person who's a first-generation student, I don't know. I was first-generation everything, first-generation undergrad, master's, Ph.D. And so the fact that I don't know these things, it's a bit intimidating to even ask, Mm -hmm. to even go approach someone for for fear of you'll feel dumb. You feel like you're an imposter, so you shouldn't even be there in the first place. And so, like I said, mentorship, opening the doors, having more people in these spaces who are people of color who are willing to do the mentorship without getting the cultural taxation that happens because they are the only person in that space. Yeah, so who are strong advocates and and feel really a responsibility and not a burden through the advocacy and that the institution provides resources so you can further that advocacy. So I, I think that's great. Um, my last question really is, you know, where do we go from here, both 
when you think about your research, when you think about black women in general mm-hmm. and black graduate uh, students in the Southwest was your research, but I want you to think nationally. And then you personally, what you'd, you'd like to do, where do we go from here in terms of black uh, women who are receiving these advanced degrees, intellectually ambitious, um, great organizers, they feel an ethical obligation uh, to the community, a moral obligation for uplift and, and social transformation, citizenship, especially of black girls and women, but the entire community. Um, what can be done? Uh, where do you see it heading, you know, in, in the 21st century, in the next 10 years? How does it look? I would say right now it's in a positive direction. I'm seeing a lot more research and calls for research on black women specifically in education and overall. So the conversations are opening up and I feel that we really need to push the needle and it doesn't need to be just black women alone. So that's an important thing. Like our issues should not be just important to us. They should be important to everyone. Absolutely. And in order for that to happen, we do have to create these partnerships and collaborations with those who are willing to take our issues and make them central. So centralizing our issues, I feel like, is a next step in pushing pushing our um, agendas forward and getting us the resources that we need in all areas because they're all connected. Education is just one area, one area that I'm very familiar with. But I do know experiencing America as a black woman that there are several other areas that need attention. And so next steps, I guess, is to keep the research coming, making sure that our voices are out there and they're, like you said, not devalued, that we are valuing the conversations that are had, that our truths are being heard, they're considered valid, and that people are really listening to what we have to say because often we're not listened to and we're not heard. And an important step is being heard. And then the next 10 years, I'm hoping that there'll be more progress, that seeing a black woman in a presidency won't be something that's uh, like, um, that's an surprising. Anomaly. Yeah, that's yeah. surprising. Um, but that. We're having more people in these spaces who be, who can then become mentors, who can open the doors. So like you said, there's there's a pathway to doing this. It just requires work from everyone, and that's what I feel like is key. Well, I'll, that'll be the, the final word on this. Um, hopefully, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Tracy Lowe is, is a future president of, uh, a, a, you know, college, university, whether that's PWI or HBCU. Um, uh, that that would be lucky enough to have her. Um, but it's been a great conversation. I think the work you're doing is tremendous. And, um, you know, I, I'd love to have you back and, and, and really chart your progress and your, your ascent well, uh, you. in higher education. All right. I enjoyed this interview, so thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.